Ray has gone bye-bye, Egon. What have you got left? Sorry, Beckman. I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today, I decided to take the podcast into a slightly different direction. In this episode, I wanted to try and do what I did in the first episode, but with somebody else. Uh, It was a different topic, and I wanted to try to have a productive and honest discussion to determine if there was... uh, if I could improve my own personal understanding and moral position. So I had a guest on and we talked about um, gay rights. The case that we were discussing on this episode was first brought forth on January 17th of 2013. A woman and her mother were invited to a Grisham, Oregon bakery called Sweet Cakes by Melissa, owned by a couple named Melissa Klein and her husband, Aaron Klein. And they had scheduled a wedding cake tasting appointment. The woman selected the bakery after having been a customer previously. Upon introductions, Aaron asked for the names of the bride and groom, at which point the customer said there were actually two brides. On hearing this, the clients informed them that the bakery does not make wedding cakes for same-sex weddings because of their religious beliefs. When the woman's mother tried to object, Klein responded by quoting Leviticus 18.22, which refers to the male homosexual act as an abomination. Now, this is... Uh, courtesy of Wikipedia, and it's a just a basic rundown of what happened. So the gay couple uh, or customer, it says here, uh, filed a complaint with the Bureau of Labor and Industries in Oregon and alleging that the bakery had discriminated against her and her fiancé because of their sexual orientation. Aaron and his wife uh, responded by doxing uh, the couple on Facebook. He published uh, a full their full names and contact information. And the couple, after the couple discovered this, uh, they had their lawyer contact the clients who then removed the posting. While it was only up for a single day, the posting ultimately ultimately resulted in death threats against the gay couple and their family. Uh, The news media became aware of it on February 1st, 2013, and it started sort of the gears in motion. There were demonstrations uh, from both sides, and uh, there was a court case after that. Initially, the court uh, decided to fine the business $135,000, which prompted the clients to open a GoFundMe page, and they raised over $100,000 before it was shut down by GoFundMe. Um, The clients did receive all the donations. Initially, the state sided with the gay couple. However, when this went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court sided with the Bakers. Now, that didn't happen until 2019. So, we didn't know that at this time, that the Court of Appeals would basically push this up to the Supreme Court and then that the court would, and that the Supreme Court would side with the Bakers, religious rights. So, in the in the coming sequence, I'm basically going to try and use clips 
clips from the original audio because the original audio, our recording equipment was terrible. So I want to try to minimize your exposure to that and maximize your exposure to this audio, which is better. Admittedly, it's not perfect, but it's better. So what I'm going to do initially is I'm going to try to steel man my guest's argument. So in this clip, my guest uh, describes where he initially got the article and his initial position. The foundation for economic education, which is very libertarian, but they're very free market and so am I. So He identifies himself as a libertarian. He is also an objectivist, uh, i.e. follows the philosophy of Ayn Rand. And he is a free market capitalist. We came into this discussion, both of us, agreeing that the state's fine against the baker of $135,000 was excessive. Um, And initially, I thought that putting the baker out of a business was also excessive. Uh, I still think it is, but um, here, let's listen to this clip then. We all agree that 135000 is not the right thing. It's not the right number. Uh, it's, it's, it's excessive. And if it causes the loss of, or this process in general causes the loss of the shop, that that's excessive, that that's not so there, uh, my guest and I are in agreement about the state overstepping its bounds with as, as far as the fine that they levied to be excessive. And it did shut down the baker initially. Uh, I'm not sure if the baker is currently out of business, but at that time it was. And we thought that that was also excessive. My guest goes on then to further elaborate and say this. Um, that's my main point in all of this, is that um, the state's not really at all, and this is where we might disagree. I don't think the state's justified at all in interfering with that at all, um, uh, but we, we, we can all agree that at the very least that the penalty is excessive. So, according to my guest, uh, the state had no position in this issue whatsoever. So, I think it's easy for me to say that my guest is a proponent of limited government. And by limited, I mean very limited. He thinks that markets should be privatized, and that includes the market for education and public roads, uh, even though the word public is in there, uh, but roads, I should say, and pretty much all markets. That the laissez-faire capitalist market solution, privatization, is the answer to pretty much all of our economic problems. So at this point in the recording, I attempt to steel man my guest uh, in the in the initial interview, and uh, I state something that he had stated to me off uh, earlier before this recording started. So we he and I had had multiple conversations in the past, and he had brought this up, this point, and he I say this to him, but then he agrees with it. So let's listen to what I said. I think I agree with you here also, is the ends cannot justify the means. The means must be ethical or moral for the ends to be considered so. So the whole process, the outcome has to be moral. The means to get to that outcome has to be moral. If either one is immoral, then the whole process is being immoral. So there, he and I are both in agreement that the process itself has to be moral and justified. He goes on from there to elaborate his position more clearly. So the ends that they're seeking here is to end discrimination against same-sex couples. Right. That end by itself, I think, is, is noble. Right. But if the means to do that, to violate somebody's property or someone's life in order to accomplish that is wrong. So there he states that he thinks that what the state here is trying to do by finding the baker is 
a moral end. They're they're trying to do something that we should all be trying to do, which is end discrimination. Um, I think you'll find later how he gets into the weeds with his actual philosophy. So here I attempt to engage with my guest and find further common ground. And I say the following. Um, we all agree that not baking the cake for the gay couple is immoral. That discriminating is immoral. Yes. Well, not discriminating. Discriminating <laughs> on the basis of sexual orientation. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and not because we discriminate for other reasons. I'm not friends with everybody. There are people I'm not friends with for, for no, valid reasons, right? Yeah, or people if, I, women I don't marry for valid reasons, right? So that's discrimination. It, the question is whether the discrimination is based on something rational or or something irrational. So he's trying to create a distinction here, and I think here's the first part where he really starts to get into the weeds. So he makes a false equivalence fallacy. So he states essentially that discrimination is wrong in the case of the baker against the gay couple based on their sexual orientation, but discrimination itself is valid. Um, he says that he discriminates all the time, like when he's dating or when he's, um, you know, he's not friends with certain people. So he discriminates against people for all kinds of reasons. But the falseness of this is that when you discriminate in your daily life, let's say on a dating website, the people you're discriminating against do not have the right to your, let's say, your body or your affections or, or anything like that. They don't have any rights in relation to that discrimination. As it pertains to the gay couple, they absolutely have a right to engage in the economy. And they have a right to services that are offered to the public. They are the public. So in the very end of the last clip there, he tries to make the point that what we're what we're trying to what we're trying to determine here is whether discrimination is based on something that's rational or irrational. And here's where he states it directly. It, the question is whether the discrimination is based on something rational or or something irrational. So he states it has to be based on something rational or irrational. And he's making a distinction there because I assume we should assume that he's looking to pay that off. So he's setting up some some parameters here for the basis of his argument. Um, and I'll summarize those in a minute, but let's finish this rational, irrational um, foundation. So he and I uh, sort of talk about discrimination after that. And I bring up, you know, it, it would be rational to discriminate, say, against a murderer or killers. Or, I mean, a, a really good example would be, you know, if you were a Jewish shop owner and a Nazi walked in, you might discriminate against them because you fear for your safety in their presence, right? Uh, they're killers. They're murderers. They murder Jewish people. So you would be right in discriminating against them because you would feel threatened by their very presence. Um, we didn't say Nazis and, and Jewish people, but we said like killers. You might you might discriminate against a known murderer, for instance. And my guest goes on to say this based on that premise. In a more abstract terms, it's rational versus irrational. Okay, yeah, it's reasonable to discriminate against a killer. Yes, it's not reasonable to discriminate against someone who has sex with people of the same. With what does that have to do with you? That's like a zero. It's not yeah. a threat to you. It's not. It might be uncomfortable, but that's your problem. That's not your consenting adult. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I go more abstract. And I believe it. It's my position that human being being the rational animal. That's the way we. That's the way we live. That's our primary means of survival. It's rational thought. That being irrational there then is therefore right. Um, so it's not immoral because it hurts somebody. It's not hurt somebody else. It's immoral because it hurts them. 
So he sets up his first conclusion there, and that's that if you do something irrational that hurts yourself, you've done something immoral. So he starts off sounding like he's on the side of the gay couple. Here, he's very clearly identifying the baker as being in the wrong, and that the outcome that the state is looking to achieve to end discrimination against gay people is a valid one, and it's a worthwhile one. Remember that for later on in this discussion. He goes on to talk about human beings as rational animals, and to be irrational is to be immoral. So he's now equated irrationality with immorality. Remember those two things as well for later on in our discussion. Um, His worldview is starting to take shape here, right? He is for open markets. He is... Uh, he equates irrationality with immorality. Um, he thinks that discrimination, it matters if you're discriminating for rational or irrational reasons. He also believes in a very limited government, uh, that the government may not even have a place in this discussion or in resolving this matter. Um, he also believes that something is immoral when you when it hurts you. So if, if the baker decides not to bake a cake for a gay couple, it's immoral because it hurts hurts the baker, not necessarily because it hurts the gay couple. So he goes on, we go back and forth a little bit um, about some of the rational and immoral um, positions that he holds. But we come around uh, at one point to public versus private property, and specifically businesses and how goods and services ought to be regulated. And I go to great lengths to make the distinction between public goods and services, right, such as the DMV, uh, and private goods and services. So that would be like me making dinner for myself, right, at my house. And then a privately owned business that is open to and serves the public. Those are all distinctions that we get into in the next clips. Now, it's my position that what I do privately in my home, so when I when I cook and eat for myself, that is a private good and that nobody has uh, can make claim to that. I'm not open to serve the public in that instance. But any business, whether privately or publicly owned, so now we're talking about the DMV or uh, a bakery, if it's open to the public, is now responsible for serving the public. And it doesn't matter who walks in that door. Now, there should be some nuance there. You know, if somebody walks in the door and you feel physically threatened, that might be a reason to uh, deny them service. Or like we were talking about a Jewish shop owner and a Nazi. So if a Nazi walks in, the Jewish shop owner understands that there is a huge amount of historical evidence and precedence that Nazis want to kill Jews and therefore may be very uncomfortable with that person in their presence. All reasons that I think you could justify and point to evidence as to why you might discriminate against a a customer. But in the case of the baker versus the gay couple, we do not have any evidence whatsoever that gay people um, pose any threat to bakers, right? We'll get a little bit more into uh, some of my philosophy behind this. But real quick, let's just hear what my guest has to say about public and private goods and services. Yes, it's it's your property. Though if you're serving the public, yes, it's your private property. It's right. yours. You decide how it's used. Right. right. Uh, and that's, the, that's what it means to own something. Right. 
So there he talks about if you have privately owned business, you as the owner get to decide how those goods and services are used. Now, I think there's another false equivocation here and a fallacy in that you do get to decide what services you provide, but you don't get to decide who walks through your door. There's demand for your service and you don't get to decide that. So meeting that demand, um, if you if you follow Adam Smith or you know any kind of history, if you follow the history of economics, at all. Most economists would agree, but especially Adam Smith, would agree that the whole purpose of production is to consume, is to provide for the consumer. There's no need, in other words, to produce a product that the consumer does not want. So if a cons- if, if you're providing a service and the demand is such that a bunch of gay people walk in your front door, then you are to provide services for those gay people. <laughs> that is how an economy runs efficiently. Now, my guest is a free market person, so you would hope that he would understand that, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So when talking about a public good, though, like the DMV, like we were, like I was just saying, my guest does agree on the to the following: racial discrimination and discrimination on the on the basis of sexual orientation when it comes to government or, in other terms, public entity, absolutely should be one hundred percent not allowed. Right? Yeah. So he understands that you can't discriminate against anybody for any reason at places that are publicly owned, like governmental buildings or government goods and services, right? He's not, though, he is not saying, though, that a private business is required to serve the public. If they open their doors to the public, they can still discriminate against the public, according to him. So at this point in the conversation, I, as the interviewer, thought that we were getting a little off topic. So we started talking about private property and public property and so on um, to further elaborate on discrimination. But I wanted to sort of circle it back around. So I go back to a point of agreement. And my guest brings up a very interesting fact. That we all agree that refusing to bake a cake for a gay couple is immoral. Yes, but I'm not sure we agree, but I I think we, we, we agree for different reasons. So he states rather precariously that he agrees that it's immoral, but for different reasons. And he does go on to elaborate on those reasons. Um, so accepting the fact that we all agree that an immoral act has occurred. So the baker refusing to bake the cake for the gay couple was immoral. My guest agrees. I agree. And the Minnesota misanthrope agrees. Now, I bring this to his attention because so far we haven't addressed that issue. We've talked a little bit about morality. We've talked about irrationality. We've talked about public property and private property. And we've danced around a little bit. But the question still remains, how do we resolve this moral act? What steps can we take to resolve this act? And here's where my guest brings in another foundation of his understanding of morality, ethics, and philosophy. Here's how I look at it. There can and should be a response. The question is, what is the response and at what level? There was no, and, and, and a key here, this is the other conviction that I have mentioned. We got we got bogged down into, um, to the initiation of force. That initiates the starts to initiate force against another human being wrong is immoral. And there has to be a caveat. Beyond, beyond being immoral, it's a violation of their right, right. But that, and, that, and that's why the, that's why the government is relevant. This point. The, the purpose of government is to protect the rights of individuals. So he made a hard and fast statement there. So the purpose of the government is to protect the rights of the individual, and that'll be very important to 
to bring with us through this conversation. Uh, another interesting position that he takes during this whole conversation is the following. Bakers do not have, no one has the right to force someone else to do something. Well, hold on, though. So he states that no one has the right to force someone to do something, something they don't want to do, right? I point out immediately after that, that if that's true, then we have absolutely no means for justice. And as you'll see, as the conversation progresses, this becomes a sticking point. But right now, what I'm doing, I just want to remind you, is I'm trying to steel man his position so that we can later discuss it and summarize it and determine how my guests view of what the government should do and how society should work and how politics should behave and how the economy should work. In his view, how do we resolve something like this when a when somebody um, discriminates against somebody else in an unethical and immoral way? Now, here my guest states specifically and directly what he believes the appropriate response to be to this immoral act. What is the appropriate reaction? Uh, the appropriate reaction is any reaction that doesn't initiate force into the baker. So, in the case of a lesbian couple going to another baker that will bake in the case, uh, for peers who are offended by the decision of the cake maker to boycott or not or refuse to do business, to write about it, to uh, to alert other potential patrons that this place is discriminating against same-sex couples, all of those, I think, are acceptable responses because they don't initiate force. They don't walk in there and take claim to their property. They don't walk in there and shut down the business out them from operating. Right. Um, so those responses, I think, are all moral and just. So any response that doesn't initiate force, he's very, very adamant about why we can't initiate force against somebody. He said it's immoral because it takes away their rights. Um, so my guest at this point, I've played the clips where he sets out his initial position, right? And my goal here is to steel man that position. So we've just played the last of the first clips and I want to sort of circle the wagons and make sure that we're all on the same page. So we're talking about uh, a gay couple walking into a bakery requesting a, uh, a cake for their wedding, a wedding cake, and the proprietor of that business denying them that service. Now, according to my guest, who has identified himself in the following ways, he is a free market capitalist, laissez-faire. Uh, he is a libertarian, and he is an objectivist. He believes in Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Um, and with that, those philosophies and that moral foundation bears out a few of his fundamental beliefs and some of his fundamental assumptions. So, initially, it's important to recognize that my guest believes, uh, because of his libertarian views, that we have a right to discriminate against anybody for any reason whatsoever. And that it does matter whether our discrimination, though, is based on rational or irrational beliefs. Now, that's something that my guest added to libertarianism, and that is part of his Ayn Randian philosophy. He talks specifically about man as a rational animal and using our minds and our rationality or our, our rationale, I guess, is the way in which we navigate the world successfully and get the things that we want. Um, to be irrational is to be immoral. 
and it is immoral to hurt one's self. So you can do something that against yourself that is immoral. So in the case of the baker, the baker decided not to bake the cake for the gay couple. And this was immoral because it hurt the baker. The baker did missed out on that money. And my guest also went to great lengths to describe how, you know, it would hurt their business, that people would petition against them or they would get blasted on Facebook or whatever. The purpose of the government is to protect the rights of the individual. And then when I asked him initially, what is his solution to this problem, it falls solely on the gay couple. They can go down to to another baker. They can just find another baker in the community. Um, They can blast this baker on Facebook. They can, you know, report them, I guess, to the Better Business Bureau or something. They can do... They can notify all their friends and they can start to boycott this baker. Um, But this is definitely what we would call, you know, in, in a modern context, this would be social justice. This would be something that you would do on your own in your own society, not something that you would bring to the governmental sphere. Now, let's imagine for a second um, that this is true, that what he said here is true, that the government does not have any position in this case, except for to protect the rights of the individual. So now he's given the baker the right to discriminate. And for whatever reason, he has not granted the gay couple the right to the baker's goods and services. Let's just assume for a second now that the government doesn't have that um, that they are there to protect the rights of the individual. And that's all that they're there to do. So if you have a right to discriminate and the government is going to protect that right, then that leads one to wonder immediately, what means does does anybody have then in the society to to be relieved of this discrimination? What way does society have then? What mechanism does does society have then to advance itself past these discriminatory beliefs? My guest readily admits and agrees that the baker was immoral in their discrimination and irrational, therefore. But what means does society have to correct for this? All that my guest has put forth so far is that the government has to protect the rights of that baker, that individual, and their right to discriminate. So right away, we find a very unsatisfying situation where the vision of my guest and the vision of really libertarians and the right wing leaves government almost completely inept in dealing with any kind of social unrest or social injustice. And the citizens have no way to claim their right to engage with the economy. So let's go on to further steel man my guest's position and to start adding some of my complaints as I do them in the in the original interview. So when pressed on his previous statement um, that the the appropriate reaction is for the gay couple to essentially boycott and you know just go down the street, just go to a different baker, right? I bring up um, I bring up my uncomfort my discomfort with this that to to just say that the that the gay couple should just walk down the street and go to a different baker it, it doesn't resolve the issue for one it does nothing to address the immorality and in fact it's sort of a hand waving of the issue altogether it's sort of just a way for libertarians to to just say well just you know deal with it <laughs> there are other bakers go find another baker that is not the point. According to what my guest has set up so far, it, his his uh, 
economy is one in which anybody can discriminate against anybody else for any reason. So what guarantee then do the gay does the gay couple have that the next baker isn't going to discriminate against them? And the next and the next and the next. Pretty soon it becomes obvious that this is not a solution because of the very foundations of the economy that libertarians and my guests are my guest is proposing. If you can discriminate against anybody for any reason, then what means do the gay couple have to to get a, a wedding cake? Now, admittedly, wedding cakes are, at least for me, not very important. I'm sure they were for the gay couple, and that's why they brought this to court. Um, but imagine all of the s- services in your neighborhood are this way. You know, uh, imagine you're just surrounded by bigots who hate gay people. How are you to get anything done then? My guest's libertarian views allow for this whole cloth. In fact, he proposes that the government should uphold these proprietors' rights to discriminate against you. So not only is will it be possible that everybody will discriminate against the gay couple, but should they feel the need to, the government will ensure that it happens. If anybody tries to stand up against these bigots, the government will step in. I bring up this point in my next point saying, well, I'm not really sure that it's okay to just say, let the gay couple go find another baker, right? Why can't we have some method or some recourse to this, to the immoral act by the baker? The baker, after all, is the one at fault here. The baker is the one that committed the moral act. Why do we have no recourse? And my guest says this. Bakers do not have, no one has the right to force someone else to do something. So he states that nobody has the right to force somebody to do something. And that sounds, that was kind of a hard stop for me. I I was like, wait a minute, that sounds right. That sounds right. There's a point there. There's something there, right? I get that. But I think if we unpack what it is that the baker is doing... To make a baker bake a cake is not to force them to do something that they don't want to do. They, after all, got a business loan, selected a location, picked out all the colors, got really giddy about the opportunity, you know, opened up their store, started baking things, made love after their grand opening, probably had a baby nine months later, right? I mean, these were not things that the bakers didn't want to do. They, in fact, anchor their entire livelihood on the act of baking cakes, on providing this service to the public. And they did, in fact, open their doors to the public. So they're not being forced to do something they don't want to do. And we'll get into some more of that later. But I point out yet again that if we cannot force people to do things they don't want to do, then we have no means for justice. Now, he sidesteps this by essentially modifying his we cannot take anything from somebody by force. So we, our means can't be... What, what is the a use of force? We can't implement a use of force as a means, right? That that's immoral and una- it's, it's something we shouldn't be doing and it's unethical and it's something that he doesn't uh, um, agree with, right? I point out that we do this all the time when we put people behind bars. So we initiate force against them for things that they did a murderer, let's say, he sidesteps that by saying, well, no, 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 that's in response to a use of force by the murderer. Okay. But what about when you don't use force, but you do something immoral or unethical or that harms society in general? You're not doing something, but you fail to do something. That is also something. That is also that inaction can be and should be, you should be held accountable for that. So, 
if you walk into a room and somebody is raping a child, for instance, now that's a really harsh example, right? We were just talking about cake after all. But if you walk into a room and somebody's raping a child and you fail to notify the authorities or to do something about that, I think we would all agree that you should be held accountable for that. So this morality of inaction, there's definitely something there, right? There's definitely something to talk about, but it doesn't hold up to scrutiny that across the board, we can do nothing to those that that don't first initiate force against us. So at this point in the conversation, I'm becoming pretty uncomfortable with where we're headed. And here's what I had to say. I'm a little... I hear what you guys are saying. I'm, I'm a little reluctant to add these layers of sort of luxury onto them. That there's okay. always another cake baker. There's always Facebook. You can blast them on there. You know. So I'm pointing out that uh, the moral bedrock of this discussion, that the issue that we're actually trying to address has nothing to do with whether or not you can walk down the street and find another baker or if Facebook has yet been invented, right? It has nothing to do with your social status or your availability to a platform or I guess your accessibility to a a platform. It has everything to do with what went wrong, what was the immoral act, and how can we correct it? What can we do as a society or as individuals to correct it? And we go around and around a little bit and I bring up that here's what I think the solution should be. To me, it sounds like to me the baker should bake the cake. So we've identified the the immoral act, and my guest has very little to say or do about correcting that. I put forth, why don't we just make the baker bake the cake? He then says. We can't force the baker to bake the cake. Um, he goes, he goes about it in a very weird way that doesn't make much sense, but he essentially says, you know, the ends can't justify the means and we can't force people to do things that they don't want to do. He stated that earlier, right? I press him again and say, but now it's interesting that you say she should have baked the cake. How then do, do you argue that you should be able to discriminate? If the answer is she should have baked the cake, how then are you arguing that she is fine having not baked it? So I point out his bizarre contradiction here. So we agree initially that the baker should have baked the cake. When I point out that the state should have just made the baker bake the cake, which was a couple clips ago... Um, he gets a really uncomfortable and reiterates his position that we can't force anybody to do something they don't want to do. And that the purpose of government is to enforce or to protect, I guess, the rights of the baker to discriminate. He goes on to say this, and for just a brief moment, the civil rights movement comes up. And remember that, because we're going to come back to it. I, I don't think the state is, should be involved at all, because no rights have been violated. So how do we get the baker? How do So, in the, And this, this is where it's going to be going made this point that makes this even more interesting and makes it even harder for the Fed. Uh, not because it makes my argument any less rational, because it makes it more emotional. Because for some reason to me, there's a, and maybe for not the rational reason, there's a difference to me between sexual orientation and race. So he brings up a, a friend of his that discussed this topic on his Facebook page, and it was in response to my guest. And he talks; they talk about the civil rights movement. And he, he, his friend, my guest's friend, brings up the civil rights movement. And my guest, a, a little 
interesting window of, of recognition here that he's on the wrong side of this particular argument. So for a brief moment there, he recognizes, well, this makes me very unpopular. And uh, it makes him unpopular because he's now undermining the entirety of the civil rights movements. It gets off track there. Uh, we don't actually circle back around and talk about the civil rights movement uh, until later. And you'll see kind of where he goes with this. But he comes back around a little later and makes what I call his first truly false position. This is a conclusion that he has come to based on the the previous foundational elements, you know, that you can be, um, that you can discriminate, that you have a right to discriminate. Um, and he goes, here, listen to this. This is really interesting. Uh, and also that the government has a responsibility to protect your right to discriminate. And then he says this. We as individuals have a right to discriminate. We have a right to discriminate for whatever reason we want, rational or irrational, it's a right. How can it be a right to my definition that's immoral? You can have a right to be immoral. How? How does that work? That's that's where we're that's where I don't understand why you're saying that. That is the exact problem. How do you have a right to be immoral? So immediately, I become very uncomfortable with this idea that we have a right to be immoral. And my guest, after being pressed on this, after being pressed on, you know, I've been trying to get him to clarify what it is he's talking about. Why is it that we can't just make the baker bake the cake, right? And, you know, he's already stated that uh, we can't force people to do things that they don't want to do. And we can't um, initiate a use of force against people unless it's a response to a use of force by them. So we're just, our hands are tied and I'm trying to figure out, okay, well then under his under his worldview and how he thinks the economy and the government should should function, what means do we have to do anything? What means do we have for justice? Um, and then he says he says that. He says, well, we have a right now. And now he's claiming the discrimination as a right. And we have a right to be immoral. <laughs> Here's where he just... I mean, this is where he starts to just completely go off the rails. And, and this demonstrates a key point that I'm going to be driving at for the, the rest of my podcasts. Uh, this is something that I live by. This is something I want you to live by. That if your foundation, if the foundation of your ethic and the, founda- the foundation of your morality, the foundation of your logic is flawed, then there is no limit to how incorrect, immoral, and unethical you can be in your conclusions. So clearly, he and I disagree. And and here's what he has to say about that. Seems to negate that, as you say. Well, and, and, I, and I think, and I said earlier, I think we have a different definition. Well, I know we have a different definition of morality. So he states just bluntly there that we have a different a different definition of morality. We go back and forth a little bit and I press him to give me some kind of understanding of what his morality actually is. What is it based on then? And then he says this. It's more simpler language. Good. A good thing versus a bad, a bad act versus a good act. Immoral versus moral. Um, and a good act doesn't necessarily involve other people. And a bad act doesn't necessarily involve them. I can do things that harm myself without harming anyone else. And that is immoral. I should do things that are good for me. Um, but if I do things that are bad for me and have no effect on anyone else, then no rights are violated. So he makes a distinction now uh, that his morality is based on things that he does either good or bad for himself. Now, I don't know why he dumbs down the language to good or bad. I thought 
we were doing just fine. Uh, but now it's good or bad against himself. And he goes on then to say, you know, I should do things that are good for me. And here does mark the key difference between what I think a valid morality is and an invalid morality. If you're going to base the entirety of your morality on what you do and how it affects you and only you, then you are going to fail every time. You're going to you're going to be on the wrong side of the argument as he has already identified himself as being on the wrong side of this argument when when pressed uh regarding civil rights in, you know, African African American civil rights in the South um and the civil rights movement here in the United States, he he admits, you know, I'm on the wrong side of that. I, it, it makes me unpopular is what this is the way he put it. Um now at the very end of that last clip, he said, you know, if I do something bad and nobody else is affected, let's see, what does he actually say? Um, but if I do things that are bad for me and have no effect on anyone else, then no rights are violated. And he says that no rights are violated. So now he's saying that if you do something bad and it affects somebody else, that's, I can imply then that if you do something bad and it does affect somebody else, then somebody else's rights were violated. Because his statement was, he said, if I do something bad and it doesn't affect any, and it doesn't affect anybody else, then no rights were violated. Okay. So the opposite of that must be true. If you do something bad and it does affect somebody else, then somebody's rights must be violated. Now, remember that because he will contradict that. <laughs> and pretty openly, he's already essentially contradicted it in some of his previous statements by saying that the gay couple does not have any rights in this interaction between the baker and the gay couple. It clearly hurt the gay couple, even if that infraction was minute, like they had to walk down the street to a different baker. Now, he would say, well, what's the problem, right? It, all you have to do is walk down the street to another baker. But recognize the other, the flip side of that coin. Earlier in this discussion, and I didn't use this clip, but he states that even if the government were to charge or fine the baker $1, that would be an overstepping of their of the boundary. That would be an overstepping of the government power, right? So even $1 would be enough to take away the rights of the baker. Yet the imposition on the gay couple, well, why don't they just find another baker, <laughs> right? Like like they're supposed to go in their car or walk or whatever and and be the one that's in, that the imposition, they should bear the brunt of the imposition. For whatever reason, he is completely negating the rights of the gay couple. And I think personally, that statement that as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, no rights were violated. Well, in the case of this baker, well, here, listen to what I say in direct, in response to that. Well, this is a clear case where that's not the case. Your bad decision, your bad act, which was immoral for you because you don't get to make money that you would have made to get the cake and provide your family with food or whatever, also affects another person. And it didn't violate a right. It, it affected another person is what I say. And how does he end that clip? Well, it didn't violate a right. But he just defined that as a right. He stated very clearly that if you harm yourself, if you do harm to yourself and it doesn't harm anyone else, then no rights were violated. Well, here we have a clear case where the baker harmed themselves and the gay couple and therefore rights were violated. But he goes to great lengths, especially at the end of that clip, to contradict himself and to state that no, 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 he doesn't. No, no rights were violated. Why he can't grant the gay couple rights, I'm not sure. I will say this. 
he was a friend of mine for many years. Uh, he is no longer a friend of mine due to these beliefs, not just these, but others that I'm going to get to at the end of this podcast. But um, he is not what I would call a white supremacist or a racist or homophobic. Um, he seems to be a fairly fair a fairly fair, a fairly straightforward person. And he, he, he doesn't seem to be bigoted to me. But what is bigoted are his his economic system and the way that he thinks government should be organized. He supports, in other words, the rights for other people to be racist and bigoted. And that is in direct conflict with another belief of his that if you harm somebody else, you're taking away or violating one of their rights. This is a direct conflict in his mind that he has not yet identified. For some reason, he just hasn't sat and thought about it long enough or whatever. But this is the danger of poor thinkers, people that just don't take the time to make sure that their position is logical and sound and valid. My guest is a great example of this, and it's the reason why we're no longer friends. It became too much trouble to be his friend. Um, it kind of goes back and forth a little bit. Um, and, you know, I had just stated that the gay couple, they were harmed and therefore their rights were violated. Um, and he goes on a little bit of a tirade and tries to bring it back for some reason to public and, and private goods and services. So let's listen in for a second. She has a right to the cake. That's the problem. She doesn't have a right to the cake. You know, where is the immoral act? If you're not, if the, the immoral act starts with and include, it starts with her not getting the money for the cake, which is immoral. It's, ir, it's irrational to not take somebody's money for a cake because they're gay. It also affects the person that isn't going to get the cake. They now it affects them, but it does not violate a right. I don't have a right to come in here and demand you make me dinner. Right? True. It's, this is your property. So the only don't or, or I don't have I don't have a right to come in here and demand that you make me dinner for a hundred dollars or for a thousand dollars or for a million dollars. Sure. I can't, I don't have that right. That's where the distinction is. If I had a right, if, if somehow you could justify it and you could state that I had a right to that. Right. If we had a contract. Uh, now, he goes to great lengths to change the circumstances here. All of a sudden now, I'm, I'm trying to point out how he has contradicted himself. And admittedly, I did a bad job. And that's why I'm doing this in clips. Because for one, I want to be very careful about platforming his ideas. I want to make sure they're being pushed back against with the appropriate responses. But for two, I wasn't as good on my toes, on my feet in this conversation as I wanted to be. So I was trying to pin him down because I smelled the contradiction in the air. And what did he do? He switched it, didn't he? Now we're not talking about a private business that serves the public. We're talking about me in my house and him just walking in and demanding that I cook him a steak, which is clearly not the same situation. So not only is he confused and not a very good thinker, right? But he's also dishonest. He's also willing to throw in quals, uh, <laughs> false equivocation fallacies. And he seems to be doing it just at random. Uh, we go back and forth a little bit. Uh, I've already dis described why uh, if you have a private business and are open to the public, you are still then responsible for serving the public. But maybe it's worth talking about just for another second. Um, good economic theory requires that you produce goods and services solely for the means of consumption, whether that be your own private consumption or public consumption. And as every producer knows, you are responsible for generating the kinds of goods that will have demand. If you have no demand for your good, then you go out of business. So 
as a private producer of cakes in this case, who is open to the public, the producer has no control over who will demand or how much demand there will be for those cakes. The producer, if if you want the economy to work well, discriminating against your demand is not advisable. It's also unethical in this case specifically. But the reason I'm saying it in that way is because my guest is a free market capitalist. Um, and you would think that if he held to those ideals... Now, I I was actually formally trained in economics. That's what my degree is in. That doesn't mean that I'm right about everything I say, but it does mean that I have a pretty fair understanding of economics and especially capitalism. Um, that's the economic system, or at least the hybrid of that system that we live under. And so that's what I studied. I'm trying to appeal to the free market capitalists out there. They need to recognize that the economy is owned by the public. And here's how I know that it's owned by the public, okay? First of all, it takes the entirety of the public for it to run efficiently. You cannot discriminate between your suppliers or the people who demand your product. You can't discriminate from where you get your product, right? Or at least it's not wise to. Now, I do later on in another podcast make a case for why, for instance, we should probably get oil from Canada instead of Saudi Arabia. But as a general rule, you probably shouldn't discriminate of where you get your product and you definitely shouldn't discriminate against the demand. If people want your product, you should let them buy it. Now, the beauty of a free market capitalist economy, at least one that has some free market capitalist elements or components to it, because don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating for everything to be free market. I am not my guest. I do not think that the entirety of the economy should be privatized. Uh, but the aspects that do work well with free market capitalism work really well because there's no incentive to discriminate. In a free market capitalist society, cash is king. And wherever it comes from, it's acceptable. Now, obviously, there are some moral issues with that that you might take. But that's for a different discussion. The basis, just the main point, just the overarching, the sweeping generalization is that if you're a free market capitalist, it doesn't matter who walks into your store. You should make them the cake and take their money because the money's good no matter where it comes from. And I'd like to appeal to the market capitalists out there, the free market capitalists out there, that if they do decide to discriminate against their demand, like my guest is advocating for, you are going against everything that free market capitalism proposes. All the benefits now start to dwindle and diminish. You you always want a free flow of capital in all of its forms, whether it be money, the lowest common denominator is money. So let's just say money, right? You always want a free flow of money throughout the economy without any barriers to transaction. So, okay, I, I went off on a little tangent. <laughs> so in this little clip, I'm trying to wrap my head around his position and he further demonstrates, well, let's listen. Well, I think, I think what you're getting at is, is part of the, one of the points I was going to try to make. So if, okay. Keep me honest here with your position. Um, you're saying that the immoral act is the person against the person, the baker against the baker. That's the immoral act. Yes. That the baker right. committed the immoral act to themselves. Yes. Yeah. That there was yeah. no immoral act committed to the gay couple. There was, yeah, there was, there was no harm caused, no rights violated. So, again, my guest fails to recognize the claim he made earlier, the contradiction in the claim he made earlier. He's still saying that there was no harm caused to the gay couple, um, even though 
and I'm going to remind you at the at the risk of being a little bit repetitive, even though when I pressed him to ask to for him to clarify how our moral positions are different, right? He had already said, I think we define morality differently, he and I. When I pressed him on that, he said, you know, if you harm yourself and it doesn't harm anyone else then no rights were violated. Okay, well, in order for that to be consistent, it would imply then that if you harm yourself and someone else is harmed, then that person's rights were violated. Um, In other words, to cause harm to somebody else is to violate a right of theirs, or at the very least, to commit an immoral act. I'm not 100% sure that every harm you can do to somebody violates one of their rights, I'm not 100% comfortable with that. But if we use his definition, that's what he has said. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think that the Bakers were... Or sorry. That doesn't mean that I don't think that the gay couple was harmed. I do think they were harmed. And I'm advocating for justice. Specifically, that the state should have forced the baker to bake the cake. Um, So... I'm starting to get an image now of what my guest is advocating for. And I touch on it here, and then I'm going to talk about it in just a second. Right now we're talking about cake, which is fairly benign, right? Um, But if you take it down to sort of the core issue here, which is, should you be able to deny somebody their pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness? So let's say, just for the sake of this argument, that we're not talking about cake. We're talking about not allowing a gay couple to, to pursue their happiness, to, to have their thrive, or, or to, to be able to trade with other people. So I've taken this idea of, you know, cake, right? And now I've expanded it out to the entire economy. I, I, I said it in sort of a convoluted way, but now I'm saying, what if we just say that they can't go anywhere? They can't do anything. Please realize that I'm setting up my guests for a very important, uh, in a, I'm, I'm, I'm purposefully setting a trap for my guest here. I know that he thinks that everything in the economy should be privatized, that everything should be privatized. Roads should be privatized. Healthcare should be privatized. Um, education should be privatized, right? In the scenario that he has concocted in his mind, the way he wants society to work, all the aspects of daily life would be privatized. Excuse me, all the interactions in daily life would be privatized, specifically the econo- you know, the economic ones. But I mean, I'm trying to include healthcare or whatever. All those would be privatized. And he's already stated that we have a right to be immoral and to discriminate. And that the only function of the government is to protect our rights. So where does that lead us? I press him on this and he sort of wiggles around a little bit. And then he says this. This concept of positive action and ne- negative action. Positive action where you do something and negative action which is where, you refuse, where, where you don't do something. Right. It's a refusal to act or, or a decision not to act, right? A positive action to inter- interfere with someone else's life. Isn't this she can of force? So... I'm pressing him over and over and over again, right? I've painted this picture now where where everywhere the gay couple goes, they're being discriminated against. And I'm pressing him and I'm saying, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to resolve this? And so instead of taking away the gay people's rights to enter, you know, to engage in the economy, he now switches gears to back to positive and and negative action or inaction, um, action versus inaction, or as he said, positive action versus negative action, which doesn't really make any sense, but, and how that 
how that relates to the use of force, which was one of his foundations from earlier. So when pressed, he starts to try and figure out... He's basically backing his way into his solution. He's already made up his mind that he's right. Um, and none of the good points that me or the Minnesota misanthrope are bringing up, he can't accept any of those because he's a very close-minded person. He's already demonstrated that multiple occasions in previous conversations, and he's definitely demonstrating it in this one. Um, and so he brings up this bizarre notion, positive and negative action. What he's essentially saying is, is that the bakers or just anybody can, by discriminating against the gay couple, are not taking positive action. They're taking negative action. And so the government can't respond with positive action to negative action. So again, he shackles the wheels or, you know, he, he puts the brakes on the wheels of justice by setting up this very bizarre notion of positive and negative action. Now, let's think about that for a second. I think we already sort of talked about it, right? Does this actually work? Now, unfortunately, I wasn't uh, bright enough during this conversation to bring up this specific example, but positive versus negative action, does that even really work? If I fail to call the police upon witnessing the rape of a child, aren't I not responsible in some way? Have I not committed some kind of crime against humanity? I mean, this idea that by not doing anything or by failing to do something, or in, in the case of my guest, by discriminating, you're taking a negative action and not, therefore nothing can be no positive action can come to you. So the state has now nothing to say. Society has no way to resolve that injustice. It just, it, it, when put to scrutiny, it, it falls apart. It falls apart in this example due to my guest's contradictions previously, but it also just falls apart when you start to take it into pretty much any example where there's been an injustice. Um, we go around and round a little bit about something similar to that, right? And we're talking about positive and negative action and the use of force. And this is where my guest really, um, I think he says this pretty clearly, what he believes the purpose of government is. And, and you'll have to pardon this for some of these clips for being a little bit repetitive. But anytime you have a conversation like this, you go back and forth and back and forth. And a lot of the times you end up just sort of re-saying the things you've already said with slight differences. And I think, though, he says it really clearly here. So let's listen in. Um, and I want to make another point, too, that I think is important here is that the purpose of government, and I, I, I hope you would both agree here, is not to enforce morality. It's to protect, we'll say, we'll use the term business, to protect from force initiated by other people, protect people from other people. Right? That's liberty. And if, if we don't agree with that, if we agree that the purpose of government is to enforce morality, um, then we end up in, in, in looking at history when that's exactly what governments have attempted to do, the atrocities that come to so, <laughs> I push back against this a little bit uh, because it seems to me immediately to be wrong and to undermine... Um, if you're going to say that the government doesn't enforce morality, then by what basis are you are you justified in putting a murderer behind bars? Now, my guest would say, well, you, you know, he initiated force, and so the government is just in initiating force against him, but that is the mechanism by which government upholds morality. The only reason why we think it's wrong or immoral, the only reason why we put people in jail is because we believe that what they did was immoral. They caused harm to society. So we put them in jail. So he just has a, a total disconnect here between the purpose of government, which is a community getting together 
to determine what to do with people like that murder people like you know what to do with the parts of of our community that mur- the members of our community that murder people right and and, and just the whole fu- everything just sol- falls apart now the government has absolutely nothing to do in in my friend's worldview um he also brings up the word atrocity hold on a second purpose of government is to enforce morality um then we end up in, in, in looking at history when that's exactly what governments have attempted to do the atrocities that come before. And he brings up atrocities, right? When he says when governments try to enforce morality, that's when atrocities occur. What? Now, the thing that comes to mind is what we had been talking about earlier, which is civil rights. And I think he's trying to claim that the government upheld the Jim Crow laws of the South. But the government in that case was just upholding or, I guess, protecting the rights of white people to discriminate against black people. So they were doing with the Jim Crow laws exactly what he says they should be doing, which is supporting or upholding or protecting the rights of people to discriminate against whomever they want for whatever reason. So clearly he's terribly, terribly confused about what it is the Jim Crow South was, what those laws did, how they were enforced, and what his current proposition of how the government should work, how that... He he seems to not understand at all how that would translate into actual reality. It would translate into the Jim Crow South. And he seems to be completely oblivious to this. So I push back at it on it a little bit, and he actually changes his wording. I, I agree with one caveat that you have to have a demonstrable evidence or reasonable morality to enforce. I mean, essentially, when we when when we put a murderer behind bars, we are enforcing morality. We are protecting morality. We're protecting other people from that person. Well, we're enforcing the idea that it's immoral to kill people without good reason. We're and so <laughs> he he immediately he sees my point and he just changes the wording protect oh, we're protecting morality okay well then I guess now the government's job is to protect morality not enforce it however you want to say it he's wrong he refuses to admit he's wrong and he just sort of weasels it out of it with weaselly language right now listen to this bomb that he drops this is almost certainly one of the worst things I've ever heard anybody say. And it just demonstrates how inadequate his position is and how inadequate his understanding of morality is and of how his ethic and his political his political ideology and his moral ideology, how it would translate into the world. So listen to what he says here. That a government protects individuals' rights to live according to their own judgment. It's protecting their right to live according to their own moral code. So the government's job is to protect the rights for them, for the people to live according to their own judgment. That's straight out of Ayn Rand. And it protects their rights to live according to their own moral code. Hmm. Well, what if their moral code is to murder everybody that they see? Clearly, the government isn't meant to protect that. So these bizarre little slip-ups, these are all indicators that my guest is basically just full of shit. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So... I'm starting to get frustrated in the conversation and I'm clearly not getting any buy-in from him that the baker is the one at fault and they should be forced to bake the cake. I'm also clearly not getting any buy-in that the gay couple has any rights whatsoever. He has not in any way identified that they have any rights in this at all. So 
in order to get the process moving along. And because he states very clearly to me that we cannot force people to do something they don't want to do, that stuck with me. And I wasn't sure how to deal with that. I've since resolved it in the case of the baker. And he does have a point, um, sort of. But immediately, if you say that, just, you know, full stop, you can't force people to do some things they don't want to do. You have to start saying, well, wait, well, then how do we put people in jail? You know, how is there any means of justice? Um, so, you, you know, it starts to get really fuzzy really quickly. And the, the, the answer to that is you have to get down to the hard work of having good, solid moral foundations, understanding your premises, understanding your foundations, and then building good, solid moral conclusions on top of that. And how do you do that? I would say that you 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 look to evidence. That's your best first step, right? Well, he's not interested in any of that, clearly. Even though he might say he is, he's so confused that he doesn't even know what he is pro and, and against. Um, but in order to get this conversation moving, and because I can kind of s- smell blood in the water, and I've had some of these types of conversations with him before, I know that he's going somewhere terrible, and I want to bait him in. So I accept for this moment, and again, part of it was because of my inadequacy as a as a as a conversationalist, right? I didn't have a good answer for how you know how we should should we be allowed to force people to do things they don't want to do. I just didn't have a good answer for that. I had to step back later on and and really think about that and figure out what the answer was. What does the evidence support? Is what I looked for, and that's what I found. But for this part of the conversation now, until the end, I take on his assumption, and I say, okay, the baker committed an immoral act against themselves, not against the gay couple. And so now, assuming that to be true, how do we move forward? So here is some of that interaction. Well, I look at it this way. Um, so the, the, the gay couple has the right to be gay. And they have a right to marry. They have the right to have a wedding. And they have the right to have a cake. Have a cake for the wedding. Yeah. Where their right ends is then who provides that cake? Who do they contract with to have that right come into existence? Yeah. And I think that makes sense. I think that's um, correct. And so if the baker's position was not only will I not bake you a cake, um, I will threaten anyone else who agrees to yeah, force other people. Yes. Now you have an initiate. We have a threat. A threat of initiation, as far as I'm concerned, is an intent of force. Um, just as fraud or, or lying right, is an initiate. It's a more future. Forcing someone to make a decision, make a framework that's wrong, that, that's enforced on That's where I think the distinction is. If they were to, yeah, threaten other bakers, now you have something that's a law. It's perfectly legitimate. Okay, so he goes on there a little bit. I'm not going to include that in the podcast. Um, But he states, again, his moral position. And now, at this point, I'm agreeing with it. And here's where I openly declare. I'm now slumping off this idea that the gay couple had a right to to the case in the sense that they had that that their rights were infringed upon. Because demonstrated that in this argument. The, the, The point here is not that the gay couple's rights were infringed upon because they weren't. They don't have any rights in, in this in this scenario. Okay, so I've now taken on his position. And as I said before, I did it for... Uh, I'm going to amend that to three reasons. I did it for three reasons. One is I just didn't have at that moment a good answer to his position where he said, you know, we don't have a right to make somebody do something they don't want to do. Even though I pushed back against it right away, I just I didn't have anything that had any teeth and I, I was uncomfortable with it. His use of force argument worked on me, in other words. The second reason was, is I knew he was going to go into some really bizarre stuff after that. And I wanted to bait him into getting... I wanted to bait him in and I wanted him to start opening up and talking freely. 
And part of doing that is the third reason why I did this. I wanted to concede a point to him because I wanted to see if he would concede a point to me, which he didn't do. But I wanted to try to build some camaraderie. Now, the goal here was to let him go off and feel comfortable so that he could basically bury himself. Um, and now, okay, so here's where we are in the discussion, right? I hadn't gotten any buy-in from him. He had gotten very little buy-in from me. Finally, I give him some buy-in, right? I can see the point to him so that we can get on with the discussion and find out, well, where's this all going? Because we were going back and forth and back and forth. And I still want to find out how we resolve this, so the issue. So here's what I said to him. However, we still have a slight problem here because the immoral action was the refusal to make the case. So how do, how do we resolve that immoral action? So I want to put it to him very clearly. We already agreed on all this that the immoral action was on the part of the baker. And so far, according to my guest's, you know, political um, ideology, the way he believes the economy should work and his moral and ethical uh, foundation, so far, we've heard nothing, nothing to resolve this issue. And now he makes the following point, and I'll react to it after. In, in refusing to bake a cake for the gay couple, not only do they damage themselves immediately by not getting that sale, but they also potentially damage their reputation. And they potentially damage future sales, especially in places like Oregon, which is very liberal. Well, is that the reason why a law like this can get passed anyway? Because the population that they're in is not tolerant to these kind of ideas. So, so he is going to rely on the market. The market will solve this. Sure. If there's one thing that the free market is good at doing, it's solving irrational belief systems, <laughs> right? It's it's snuffing out all these irrational beliefs that Christians have and getting them to 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 get rid of them. <laughs> In other words, the market will handle it. The market will deal with it. Um, I point out that according to his ideology, though, the market can't do anything about it. I mean, the government is going to support the baker, right? So what mechanism does the market have to go up against the support that the government has for the, the baker? If, if the government is going to protect the baker's right to discriminate, then what is the market going to do? And uh, that doesn't really get anywhere. And here's where I start to compare it to uh, the segregation in the South. They're, they're segregating themselves out of a certain portion of society. They're also, in, in a sense, segregating portions of society. We can imagine a scenario like in, and I think here's where the racial problems or the racial, our racial past can come into play. You can imagine a whole community of people that will not serve, for instance, a black person. And that happens. And that happens. And it also, let's not forget, though, I just want to add that that also happens with support of the state. And then correcting that issue took longer than it should because the state was enforcing And he, <laughs> so he readily admits and, and recognizes that full, discri- you know, discrimination of an entire group by the entirety of, of the economy or a society is totally possible. And it did happen in our past. So his solution that the bakers can just go down the street or blast them on social media or whatever is now basically undermined completely. Uh, there is no baker down the street. All bakers, it's possible at least, and it did happen before, that all bakers would just discriminate. What would stop them, right? And also notice, and I brought this up earlier, but this this directly negates his position of what it is that the government is there to do. He stated that the government slowed down 
the integration of the South, when in fact, they were doing what he's suggesting the government should do in the case of the Baker versus the gay couple. They were just upholding the rights of the white supremacists and the racists to discriminate against the African Americans. So his head is so far up his own ass that he doesn't even know which way is up or down. I go to some length here to point out his negation here. Listen in. Correct, but, but your position does leave an open door to that behavior. Every shop owner has the right to not do business with anybody for any reason. So if everybody in the town believes that they should not be doing business with gay people or black people or whatever, they have that right. The state should enforce that right. Protect, yeah, protect that right. And he agrees. <laughs> they should protect that right. So by what means is he... Earlier, he was just saying, well, the government slowed down the the integration of the black and white community in the South. Don't forget how bad government is. Uh, excuse me, they were just doing what you said they should do. So now he has basically painted a picture that I've jumped on, that we have now a society under his... If we follow, you know, his premises and his foundations to... If we build up our house of cards... If we follow it to their logical conclusion, we take the government's role, we take the the idea that everybody has the right to discriminate, we take his idea that nothing bad happened to the baker, or sorry, that nothing bad, we take his idea that nothing bad happened to the gay couple, right? Um, we could start to see what society might be like. It might be like the Jim Crow South, right? Completely segregated. Um, listen to how he responds to this. Let me start by making a clear concession um, that if I were in another, other, another audience that I didn't trust so much, I wouldn't because I wouldn't be understood. Uh, that, uh, and the concession is that, yes, if you're going to protect those rights, even if it could never happen in reality, in, in a real social world, it does create that scenario that you use it just as a thought experiment that if all the white people uh, refused to serve black people on their business, you would have, it, there would be, there would be horrible, would be terrible, but it, but no rights would be violated. Right. And then it wouldn't be right for the state to intervene. But I think the, uh, the good news, though, is that it, that scenario, though we've seen it in our past, it was stronger and it was uglier because the state, uh, um, so endorse it, endorse that idea. But if the state simply protects rights and does not force people, there's nothing that stops the, the black community or the Hispanic community or the gay community from setting up their own businesses to serve each other, serve themselves. Well, I mean, and that's, we, that's something we see. So from a moral, strictly moral standpoint, in that thought experiment, that's acceptable, it's acceptable for, the, for the state not to intervene in a scenario where black people must serve white people. So there you have it. He's now completely undermined the civil rights movement. Just let that let that explode in your brain for a second. If you believe the same things he believes, you are undermining all of the progress that we made in the last civil rights movement. He basically is completely denying early, you know, early in the clip, he denies that this would even happen. He thinks this, this wouldn't happen. It's unlikely, even though he does then later in the clip recognize, oh yeah, but it did happen. But, 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 but I want to point out that, uh, uh, the state actually made it harder for them to integrate, uh, but, 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 but by doing what I think they should do, which is, uh, uh, protect the rights of the whites to discriminate against the black. And, 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 and nothing bad is happening to the black people uh, because of this. That's his position. That's what he believes. That's what he thinks. That's that's how far he's willing to go just so a baker doesn't have to bake a fucking cake. And that cake is something they would bake for anybody any other day of the week, no matter what, and they, they're happy to do it. 
we've kind of gotten to a level of, of absurdity here now where he's just sort of talking uh, in circles. Now, it's really hard. It was really hard for me to listen to this. And I get to a point in the conversation where I think it's appropriate to reflect. Well, here, let me just let me just play the clip. The thing, essentially, and I'm trying to gather my thoughts here, but we've expanded this out now to say that essentially we can't see a moral reason to stop everybody in town from serving black people. Absolutely not. Okay. We, we've now said that based on, based on the, the, where we're starting from, we're saying that we can't say that a shop owner can't discriminate against whoever they want. And we can all imagine a scenario where every shop owner discriminates one against one kind of people, like black people. Um, and we're saying um, that we don't have any basis morally or ethically. Even though that's describing any kind of society we would want to live in, we don't have any basis, moral or ethical basis, to say that that's incorrect. Because people are allowed to discriminate against whomever they want. So there's a... a a slap in the face of reality for my guest. And my first attempt to demonstrate to him the depravity of his position. Because I do believe that, uh, and I don't even have to believe, uh, it doesn't matter what I believe. He demonstrates that his morality, his ethic, his political position, and what he believes the the way that the way he believes the economy should be run is completely depraved. It's depraved of morality. There's there's immoral acts occurring all the time every day. People are being hurt because of not just their hurt feelings, but they're not making anywhere near the kind of income that they would be making if they were just all working together and all uh, selling to one another and welcoming each other into their doors. This is a depraved state, a failed state, essentially. And he's proposing in maybe it was a couple clips ago now, but an ethno state. He was saying, well, the, you know, the Latinos and the and Africans and the and the gays and the, the this and the that, they all make their own, you know, they would all have the right to do their own thing. They could all open up barber shops and cut each other's hair and open up bakeries and bake shit for each other. And that would be fine, right? So not just the ridiculous black versus white uh, discrimination, but now we get to discriminate against everybody. Now it's, you know, what are you, a little shade of brown? Okay, get out. Uh, what are you, gay? Get out. What are you, woman? Get out. What are you, you know? I mean, there's just no end now to, to the level of immorality and depravity that we can reach if we follow his, his lead. So here's where I bring in the word dystopia. How do we start from a morally sound position such as you, you shouldn't be forced to, to serve people, right? I mean, that, that is a morally sound position. You should be able to discriminate against whoever you want, even for stupid reasons, which is an immoral act. Discriminating against somebody because they're black is immoral, and it's immoral for reasons that are, as, as you were saying, self, sort of self-centered. You're losing out on good money, right? But now we extrapolate this idea, and now all of a sudden you've got a perfectly moral society who will not serve black people in public places or, you know, in perfectly moral society. Well, it, what way is it not moral in the sense, just in the sense that each person individually is... So obviously I'm terribly confused right there. <laughs> you know, I don't even know what I'm saying because I, I'm just, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. And I didn't end up using the word dystopia. I do, I do use it later though. So 
here what I what I was trying to say is how did we start from what we said were sound ethical and moral foundation you know that you can't force people to do something they don't want to do the initiation of force is wrong in all instances and uh, that we have the right to discriminate, uh, that you have a right to be immoral or whatever, even though I don't think I ever bought into that, that the gay couple didn't have a right to the cake or they don't have a right to engage in the economy. How do we start from this moral position and then end up in a total dystopian nightmare where, yet you know, there's a, a black part of town and a white part of town and a, a female part of town and a male part of town and a Latino part of town and a gay part of town and a straight part. I mean, where everybody's segregated out now to the max. How did we get here? And then my guest takes us on a tangent into the following. It's the advocating of reason over faith. Yeah, that is the, that's the answer to, to really all of mankind's problems right now. So in just a whiplash of irony, he states that we have to advocate for reason over faith. Never mind his faith in the free market and its ability to resolve this issue because of Facebook, I guess, or that the gay couple could just walk down the street, even though in his dystopian nightmare, um, you know, the gay couple finds themselves surrounded by bigots. Now, I agree with the idea that we need to use rationality over faith, but it seems to me that he completely discounts his own use of faith in this whole in this whole discussion. So we go on a little bit and then he just sort of reiterates the depravity of his own position. But uh, my point being that that's, that's where the solution is, is getting people to accept that faith leads to, well, faith is irrational and leads to death and destruction. I agree. And reason leads to life. Reason leads to people thinking cake for good people, yes. right? For good reason, yes. But, but reason leads to win-win if, scenarios. If we take this one scenario and we break it down to a place where we consider this moral, or, or at least beyond the, per, the point of the state, right? Okay, so it is immoral. That's the key there. The, um, the point is, it's an immoral society where black people don't, where white people don't serve black people. Yeah. In business. That's right. a moral society. Right. But it's not one that justifies, there's no initiation of force, so there's no response to force necessarily. Uh, that can, uh, justify it. So, so even when you multiply this across the entire community, you've got a whole metropolitan area like not serving black people. If you want to still don't have a position, I mean, no, here's what you still have. So I point out, like, I point out that no matter how horrible it gets, we still have nothing. We can't do anything <laughs> to solve this as a society. You're giving us nothing. And then he, he says this. And this is, I think, what he thinks is optimal. You still, have, you still have the protection of each individual's right to engage in business, to trade with each other, to act on their own judgment. It, it, it's, it's actually, the wider that society is, the less likely that scenario is to happen. And he drops the first indicator that I think it brought up the word white supremacist in my mind. Um, but like I said before, I don't think he is a white supremacist, but he he says uh, uh, this essentially is his optimal state. This is what he wants. And he states for some weird reason that actually the whiter or the most the more homogenous uh a society is, the less likely we are to see discrimination. For not being a white supremacist, for not being a bigot, for not being a racist and, a, you know, 
and anti-gay and, and whatever, he has an awful lot in common with them. And I'm, I'm going to hold strong to that position that he's not those things. I don't think he is a bigot. But look at how readily his ideology, his idea of how the economy should work, his idea of what government should do, look at how readily it leads to just that. A depraved ethnostate that's completely homogenous, and that's the only way to get rid of discrimination, is by getting all the whites in one place and all the blacks in one place and so on and so on. The, the state has nothing. They can do nothing to resolve these injustices, this immorality, this unethical behavior. And in fact, they're there to uphold it. For not being a white supremacist, he sure sounds a lot like them. And this is why I think so many white supremacists, so many bigots, so many people are drawn to the right and drawn to these ideas because they validate those positions and they provide state support and protection. So not only can you be a total asshole, but the state demands that you be one. <laughs> the state recognizes it as a valid position. So reeling from this bomb that he just dropped about the whiter a community, the less likely they will be to discriminate, which in all truth is, or in, as a matter of fact, is true. I mean, we see less and less discrimination the more homogenous a group gets. I don't think that that's a solution. It is just a fact. Um, but it's not something to strive for because we also see great prosperity where we have acceptance of all groups. So, I mean, that it's, that's not the only fact to take into account. Sure, if everybody looked just like me and thought just like me, then I guess there wouldn't be a lot to disagree about, right? But, you know, I didn't come up with anything amazing. Everything amazing came from other cultures. And I mean, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know how to answer this question because it is a fact that the more homogenous a group, the less discrimination they have against one another. But I think you might argue that the more discrimination they have for anybody that's different. So it still doesn't solve any discrimination issues. It just, it just plays in to their in-group, out-group tribal tendencies, the tendencies that all human beings have. I think if we're going to ever overcome this kind of thing, we have to recognize that we need tons of diversity all around us and to accept it. Anyway, maybe that's a tangent. But any now reeling from his you know, ethno-state solution, um, I, I reiterate the depravity of his position. Here, let's listen. This new world order that we're describing, and you say everybody can discriminate against everybody else. We all agree that that's the society we all are living in, first of all. So I don't know how much utility there is in things. We, we still haven't addressed the key immoral behavior, which is not making a cake for atheists, right? And I get, I try to get us back on point again. Okay, so my guest has offered absolutely no solution whatsoever. In fact, the more information he gives us, the worse it seems to get. And the more we follow his recommendations and his moral underpinnings, the worse it seems to get. So here, I think it, this is where I first indicated dystopian society. Here's where I point out more problems I have with his with his uh, his position. No, I think. I hear what you're saying. I think I think this is a this is a symptom of, of sort of the rollback of the gravity of what it what, what what we're saying actually applies. I think we are saying that you can reject service to anybody for any reason, and it is immoral by right. right. Yes, by right. Yeah, right. You have the right to do that. Now we're going to have to get your right to do it. So well, hold on. We're going to have to change that because that 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 sounds to me like we're headed in the wrong direction. I don't know that you have a right to be immoral. But but let's just say for the sake of what we're saying right now, is that we've established that you are, that state does not have any position on whether or not you can refuse service to somebody. They cannot force you to serve somebody that you don't want to serve. Right. But 
when we extrapolate that to the entire country or whatever, to a large population, all of a sudden we're find, we find ourselves in this dystopia where nobody would want to live in that, and you certainly wouldn't want to go to, you wouldn't want to be the one discriminated against, right? And, and I think, I think one thing that, one thing that we're assuming that isn't necessarily safe to assume is that everybody has equal access to resources. So there I, I get into more of this dystopia that I'm really trying to push up against. I'm still assuming his position, but I'm doing so in such a way that allows us down this path of absurdity in order to try to point out at some point, hopefully, that maybe he'll take a step back and say, hold on, I need to rethink my position because this is no longer making any sense. Um, and for a brief moment, it kind of sort of starts to work. Listen into this next clip. What we're, what, this is a thought experiment. Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm going. Right. Yeah, and uh, most thought experiments are on the surface absurd. There's where he sort of concedes his position a little bit. He starts to label his own position as absurd. This is a thought experiment, and it's absurd, right? But up until this point, he has doubled and tripled down. He's shown a, an immense amount of dishonesty and absolutely no self-reflection. For, for somebody that has a morality and an ideology that is all based on the self and the individual to the point that the greatest immoral bad thing you can do is to do something bad to yourself... Um, he doesn't seem to care too much about himself or what he thinks. He doesn't seem to be a steward of his own mind. He's not going in there to figure out if what he thinks is true or not. He's just sort of blindly accepting whatever he reads on the Ayn Rand website that he follows. I point out a little bit later that the state that he's proposing doesn't have any means to govern. There's no way... So essentially what we're saying is there's no way to fix the economy so that we all get to benefit from all of it. I mean, money... No, 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 no. I point out again that money is the lowest common denominator. He says no, but he doesn't actually say anything after that that is of any substance. A town of 50,000 people. Yeah, 25,000 are white, 25,000 are black. Okay. And there's 25,000 all reasons to do business with the 25,000 black people, right? And we end up in a scenario that is highly immoral, highly irrational, um, but there is no justification to force that. And that would be an end, uh, end justified and say, we don't like the scenario, so that justifies the support of the trade of black people. So, Right there, he he was talk he was referring to a thought experiment before he sort of he sort of lays one out here. We've got twenty five thousand black people and twenty five thousand white feel white people, and they refuse to interact with each other. But we have no means. There's no authority uh, for the government to integrate them in any way, shape, or form. So essentially, as I said earlier, I'm sure I'm repeating myself immensely now. His government doesn't govern. They don't do anything. And when there are immoral acts or unethical behavior. There's no means for them to fix it. So listen to this. This is really fascinating. If, if, if anyone is ever justified in initiating force against another human being, then you have to define when is it okay to initiate force and when is it not. Right. And I don't know how you, how, I don't know how you um, use that out. That assumes that human beings have obligations to others for the fact that they exist. Okay, so right there he admits a ton of... He admits ignorance to his own moral position. So he's talking about the use of force. When you, should you initiate the use of force? Now, it's his position that the initiation of the use of force is an immoral thing to do. But he admits, I don't know how to figure it out, right? So he hasn't gone through the hard work of doing this. And then at the very end, he gives us another little tidbit about what he believes. And this is Ayn Rand now speaking. Um, and he says this. Human beings have obligations to others for the fact that they exist. 
So he's saying this assumes that human beings have obligations to one another just for the fact that they exist. Well, let's test that idea. That sounds that he's he's saying that as if we don't have obligations to one another because he does not believe that we do. Ayn Rand does not believe that you have an obligation to your fellow man of any kind. In fact, in his worldview, charity is one of the biggest evils that you can commit because you're giving something, you're taking something out of your mouth or your pocket and giving it to somebody else needlessly. They should go get their own. If you feel like helping somebody, you're you're committing an atrocity, according to my guest. I don't know how he raises his children. Apparently, he thinks that it's like an investment fund. So, to be fair, uh, everything I know about my guest, he is a very good father. Uh, but what I, I said that because it demonstrates the poverty of what he's saying. And at this point now, it's difficult for me to believe that he acts this way. And there's no doubt in my mind that he believes these things to be true, but he contradicts his own beliefs in his everyday actions. Let's test that saying, that little, that little tidbit right at the end. Um, it assumes that we have an obligation to one another just because we exist, just because the other exists. If you've ever heard this, the saying, the right my right to swing my arm ends at your nose, then you understand that you absolutely do have an obligation to your fellow man just because they exist. So again, 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 I'm driving this home. How do we solve the problem of the baker? We still have nothing. There's no resolution, not even in sight. And in fact, we've gotten so depraved and so out of control that we are now proposing an ethno state where everybody's discriminating, uh, everybody's discriminating against everybody else, and there's absolutely nothing to be done about it. So here I pose the question again. How are you then to open up this black box of the immoral act of the baker, or the immoral act of the 25 versus the 25? I mean, you've got this society now that we've identified as being immoral, irrational, nobody would want to live in. It's a terrible society, but it is based on what we're saying is a logical, sound, justifiable, ethical, and moral stance that we for some reason can't initiate force against. Okay, so I'm now I'm still claiming that his position is justifiable and, and moral and ethical, and I'm giving him that, and I'm saying, okay, so how do we resolve this? There's got to be a way to resolve it, and here's here's what he said. It's so immoral the outcome that there must be a false premise. How do we solve the problem without action? I mean, how do we do that? It's a false premise because it'll never happen. It, 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 no, no, no. The false premise is that it's, that it's okay for for somebody to be immoral against themselves, as if that doesn't affect. I mean, at what point do we recognize that this immoral act against yourself, which quote-unquote doesn't affect anybody else by force, does affect everybody else in a very bad way that could be equated to force? So there, I get it to him. I put it to him. And what does he do? <laughs> he negates. It would never happen, right? He's so flustered that he negates his own system now. All the things he's just proposed, all the things, all the logical conclusions that we have come to based on his assumptions, based on his foundation would never happen. So I'm objecting now to his very foundation. I have now rejected his position. I've stated essentially, you know, at what point do we say enough is enough that this immoral, unethical state, ethno state that refuses to do business with one another um, will not stand and that the state or something, somehow we have to crack the shell. I call it the black box. 
How do we do that? Listen to what he where he takes us next, because I shit you not. This has to be the lowest of the low. You've got a sweet dystopia just to make sure that we don't make a baker bake a cake for somebody that they're irrationally discriminating against. But it's not just about the cake. It's that, it's that moral premise that you don't get the force. It's the same, if you really think about it, it's the same moral argument against slavery. That you do not have the right to force another person to work for you. It's the same principle, the absolute same principle. Okay, so now we've hit the rock bottom, I think. He is now claiming that forcing the baker to bake a cake is the same as slavery. I think I said it earlier, but this baker, this is their dream to bake cakes. Make no mistake, slavery, bringing up slavery in this context is one of the most dishonest things that one can do. Now, I'm going to go over all the different ways that people can lie and be dishonest, but this is so intellectually bankrupt and morally corrupt that it's this is detestable. So make no mistake that this is white supremacy and their response to losing the battle of owning slaves. Now forcing them to cater to the people that they discriminate against makes them slaves. Now, again, my guest is not a white supremacist to my knowledge, but he sure does have a lot in common with them. And this is right out of the white supremacy KKK neo-Nazi playbook. People that still believe they should have slaves want to discriminate against other groups of people and being forced to be reasonable and provide the same level of service to all people, the entirety of the public, now forces them to be slaves. That's what they want you to believe because that word, slaves, slavery, it's a trigger word. It's the same thing the right wing complains about the left doing when they say they're virtue signaling. It's the exact same thing. So this to me is just rock bottom. This is the kind of thing that you hate to see in another person that you consider a friend. It couldn't get any more different than slavery. I said it before, these bakers, this is the plan that they had for their life. Slaves are ripped from their lives and forced to do things that they would normally never do. Um, here was my response in real time. This isn't about, is about slavery for one important reason, is that there is an exchange of goods, money. So you couldn't hear it very well, but I say this is not slavery, um, you know, for one very important reason, and that is because there is an exchange of goods, money. There's an exchange of money here. Now, if I would have been really smart, I would have said, come on, you know, and I would have stated what I stated earlier. The bakers, this is what they made for their life. This was their dream, was to bake cakes for people. They're just being assholes based on a stupid religious belief that there's no there's no evidence to support. I'm going to end on that. So let's listen. Here's here's what he has to say to my statement that this is not slavery because there was an exchange of money. Good reason to receive shelter. Yeah, I knew you were going to go there. So he says that slave owners gave the slaves shelter, and that was an exchange similar to the one we're seeing with the baker. Slaves were given shelter. Yeah, I knew you were going to go there, but that's not the thing. It is the same. No, it's not. Because shelter is not money. Money is the everything. Oh, money is just a way of treating value. Exactly. And the shelter is just shelter is the value. Yeah, but it's not. So there he, I, I played the entirety of that exchange because of just how ridiculous it was. <sighs> now the slave owners were just because they gave the, sh the slaves shelter. Truly rock bottom. Now he is in some bizarre way supporting and endorsing slavery because it's just like paying a baker 
to bake a cake, right? There's an exchange of of value. Uh, the slave owners gave the slaves places to sleep and women. Eh? I'll say it again. When you start off with false premises, when you start off with a terrible foundation that can't be evidenced and isn't supported by reality and facts, there's no limit to how terrible and depraved your conclusions will be. There's no limit. So let's listen into this real quick. Even though I don't like the outcome, accepting is why I have to accept that in that case, there's no, no force yet necessary. I'm, I'm now going back to the scenario of the 25,000. And finally, he he has some sort of half-hearted admission that his, that his moral framework is just bankrupt. He recognizes that he doesn't like it, that, um, that it's no, nowhere he'd want to live, um, but there's absolutely nothing that can be done about it because of his moral foundation, because of the foundation he built this worldview on. That I don't think it's very like the good news is this really couldn't happen without a state that prohibited trading for black people on white in that clip, he throws over a cloak of denial, right? So now he's claiming that this couldn't even happen, even though supposedly I would imagine this is what he wants to happen because this is the state that he's proposing is just, but it would never happen unless the state prohibited trade, right? Never mind the Jim Crow South, <laughs> a state that prohibited trade because people discriminated against people and they voted those people into office and then the people they voted into office made it legal for them to discriminate, therefore upholding their right to discriminate. He has no no understanding of how government works, no comprehension of what he's saying, how what he's saying is going to affect the world. And he doesn't even care because he doesn't even think it's going to be possible. So he completely denies all of it. it the, the house of cards has now just fallen completely. And in a last ditch effort to somehow rebuild, he pointlessly triples down on his initial foundation. So we get back to these two convictions that I have, that the ends can't justify the and that initiation of force uh, against uh, another human being that uh, appropriates a response that that's always immoral and it maybe the most immoral, immoral thing you can do. So he fails to see how those premises are false. He fails to see how if you build a system based on those premises that it's a horrible, wretched system. This whole entire exercise has been a complete waste of time. This is the problem. He is the problem. People like this are the problem. You know, you have to ask yourself if your positions are demonstrated in such a way, the way that we have in this in these clips in this discussion that I had in 2017 with this ex-friend of mine. If your position is demonstrated to be this poor and to have this bad of an outcome and to be you know so depraved and so poverty stricken is it really worth having isn't it worth reevaluating your position why would you at the end of this conversation do anything other than say you know what i need to go back and reevaluate where i started from and see if i maybe made a mistake i need to check my arithmetic check your work show your work right we go through the hard the hard work of having this discussion according to the time we're now five, or we're now an hour and 15 minutes into this discussion he and i going back and forth and he has learned absolutely nothing he's only tacitly agreed with me on very minor points if that and he's he he flat out states that he's fine with all of this he recognizes that it's a horrible situation to be in but that there's nothing he can do <laughs> nothing the state can do um, I have to accept that in order to intervene, you have to violate one of those two thoughts. You either have to force, initiate force against people, or you have to accept that ends to justify me. I don't see any other way around it. 
So there he admits completely then that even amidst, uh, a comp- uh, even when faced with a total dystopia, his morality, his ethic, his position has nothing to say about it, has nothing to do about it. Because you can't initiate force, which is at best very shaky for a foundation. There may be some instances where you could say that, yeah, that's true. You can't, you can't do that, right? You can't forcibly, for instance, steal. You can't take away something from somebody. You can't forcibly take somebody's life. But to say in all instances that you cannot initiate force against somebody misses out on all the opportunity you would have as a state to force a baker to bake a cake for a gay couple and therefore continue the economy as we know it and to not have uh, support from the state of people that look to discriminate and not have an ethno-state such as what he has proposed and not even have to worry about whether homogenous communities discriminate more or less (laughs) as if that's a goal, an outcome that we should strive for. This demonstrates how important it is to take your foundational position, to take your foundational assumptions and to make sure you understand all the nuance of those positions. Where are their limits? Where are their faults? Where are they applicable and where are they not? Clearly, his idea that you cannot use force against somebody is not applicable in every situation. Our conversation goes on. You can do something. What I'm saying you can't do is initiate force against it. Well, what can you do? You undermine your, you can, then you undermine your own claim to, to rights. You undermine your own, your own, uh, own claim to morality. If you, if you say on one hand, if you have a right to force someone to do something for you, why isn't it right for them to pay cotton for you? So again, he, now he's doubling down on slavery. Even amidst my protests, right? He's trying to equate what we're forcing the baker to do to what we forced the slaves to do. We sort of stumble through the, the, the back and forth there, and then we end up with what I think is his mic drop moment, right? I think he thinks that now he has said, well, what's the difference between us forcing the baker to bake a cake and forcing a slave to pick cotton? <laughs> I mean, this is almost, almost, uh, you know, laughably juvenile of a moment. And he thinks he's really reached now the pinnacle of morality. Now, to wrap up this long discussion, I have here some communication. And this is the last communication that I had with my guest. Now, this initial recording, the the clips that you're listening to in this podcast were done in like 2017. And my guest and I had been friends for quite a while. Before that, um, but there were always these like rubs. There was there were these areas of miscommunication and you know difficulty. Um, and eventually, I just had to say enough is enough. And here's the exchange that led to that. He and I were going back and forth at one point in a phone conversation about the Nazi Party. And he was regurgitating the right-wing garbage that the Nazi party is actually a left, a leftist party. They're on the left. That authoritarian Nazi regimes are on the left. That is incorrect. And his, his reasoning for this was the word socialist was in their party. So the National Socialist German Workers Party, commonly referred to as the Nazi party, right? That's, that's what Originally, the Nazis essentially took a stronghold in the Socialist German Workers' Party and took it over. But they weren't socialists. They were authoritarian right-wing fundamentalists. And by fundamentalists, I mean Christian fundamentalists. 
And I just, I basically, we were having this back and forth and I was just like, you know, face palming the whole time going, oh my God, dude, I can't believe you're this stupid. I mean, it takes a millisecond to research not only where the Nazi party is on the political spectrum, that they are on the far right, but that they commandeered the Workers' Party, the Socialist German Workers' Party, and that the the claim from the right, the conspiracy theory from the right, or the false claim from the right, that the Nazis were socialists is well known and, and very easily debunked. So I just sent him a little clip. I think it was from like Wikipedia or something. And it basically goes on to say, it was a far-right political party in Germany that was active between 1920 and 1945 that created and supported the ideology of national socialism. Its precursor, the German Workers' Party, existed from 1919 to 1920. So this fledgling uh, party was then overrun by Nazis. Once they saw a position that they could take, they took it, right? So I said to him, you know, maybe before we have our next, maybe before we have our next discussion on the right versus left, you could Google Nazis first, you know? To say that they were socialist and on the left is, was like borderline, I just put the word was borderline. And he's like, borderline what? You know? And I'm like, well, borderline R word. It's, you're borderlining, you know, Nazi denialism and Holocaust denialism. He retorts then and says, it doesn't matter to me where they belong as in referring to whether they're on the right or the left. I can accept them as far right, whatever that means. Okay, so he's acting like he doesn't even know what the difference between right and left now. And then he goes on to say, totalitarians only care about coercive power, not right or left. Well, there's some validity to that. Totalitarian regimes uh, generally do uh, use coercive power, but they do also care about right versus left. So, in response to that, I say, uh, well, that's fine. It's just a monumental mistake to call them socialists. It also happens to be a right-wing talking point. So, from my point of view, it seems you are drinking from the right-wing Kool-Aid, which is not advisable. And then he says, monumental? What the fuck does that mean? They called themselves socialists, right? So, doubling down now on his ridiculous propaganda. And then I say, it's like stating we were designed by a creator. He says, it's not at all like that. I, I said, it's like that in the way that it's so wrong. It leads me to wonder if you're being honest. And he says, fuck off. <laughs> and I say, I'm just being honest with you. It's that kind of wrong. And he says, you're looking for a fight and I'm not playing. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's, it's t he's talking to me like I'm his girlfriend or something. It's so ridiculous. And then I say, I promise that I'm not. I just wanted to let you know. And if that it really made me rethink what it is you're trying to do. I, and I landed when I thought about it. I landed on honest mistake. But for a moment, you made me wonder. And then he says, if you think that I'm the kind of person who will lie about what I think just to make a stupid point, then you haven't been paying attention. I only say what I think. Sometimes it doesn't come out right. <laughs> okay. Sometimes I'm wrong, but I won't lie about what I think. And I don't need you to agree with me about anything. So if we're going to have a conversation, let's try to understand the world better. That's great. But if you already know you're right and you're only looking for a satisfaction of dominating another person with your self-righteousness, we can just move on. So this is this is where I started to say, okay, this this relationship is now ending because I point out a very serious and very obvious mistake from him. He, claim, he claiming that the Nazis were on the left. He does not retract it. He doesn't take the 0.8 seconds to look it up. I quote it back to him from the internet. He doubles down saying socialist is in the name of their party. <laughs> a, a quick read of any 
uh, document on why it says that it, it would clear this up, right? All he has to do is say, hold on a sec, let me go check this out and then come back and say, you know what, you were right or whatever. I, I retract my statement. Now, instead of that, though, because I'm pointing out his mistake and just saying, hey, man, I just wanted to let you know that that's where I'm at. I'm not trying to pick a fight with you. I'm just trying to be honest and let you know that what you said was incorrect. And it was so incorrect that I started to question whether or not you're, you're being serious. And what is what do I get for that, right? When I point out the Lego, the level of ignorance and stupidity that he's demonstrating at this point is making me question whether or not he's actually being serious or if he's just being petty. And so now he calls me self righteous, <laughs> which is such a this is this just shows and demonstrates the poverty of understanding. This is a religious way of thinking, in other words. This is ignorance to the level of just name calling, but. Calling somebody self-righteous in this context is really just a shadow. It's just a, it's just a reflection of themselves. They're just projecting onto me, right? This is coming from a person that thinks they can't be wrong. This is coming from a person that when we were talking about climate change, which he is a climate change denier, he brought up a graph that's used by the right and used by this fella, something Epstein, um, and it states that the climate hasn't changed in the past 10 years or whatever. Well, when you look to debunk that, when you look into it and you look at where they got that data and what that data means and how they compiled that graph, there, there's a full spectrum of scientists debunking that information, saying that they're, they're misusing it and it's, they're misquoting it and so on. They're using it out of context and it's, it's not valid. He, this person, my guest, actually said to me, he said... It would be so easy to debunk this graph that I can't believe that they would even use it. Therefore, it must be true. In other words, why would they use something that's so easily debunked? Why would they use something that would be so easy to look up and prove wrong? And there, therefore, it can't be wrong. And therefore, I'm going to believe it. This is the kind of thinker we're dealing with here. This is the kind of thinker that Ayn Rand and that philosophy and the right. This is the kind of thinker that you get. When you get somebody that's steeped in that ideology. Okay. Now, moving back on, he's called, moving back to this conversation, he's called me self righteous and he said, we can just move on essentially. And then I say, I didn't say it to upset you. I'm just reacting to what I heard. You have to understand that I follow my debate topics. That is a right wing talking point that I've only ever heard from the most dishonest people, people like Dennis Prager and the like, people that know they are lying and say it anyway. So it made me wonder. So I told you about it just to be straightforward and honest with you. He then comes back and says, you thought I was being dishonest. Not much offends me, but that does. I wouldn't blame someone who didn't know me, but you know better. You also know better than to make false equiv equiv excuse me, equivalency. I don't know if that's the right word. Equivocation, maybe? I don't know. Whatever. Calling Nazis socialist is not the same as being a creationist. There's plenty of evidence for one of these, including the fact that Nazis called themselves socialists. There's no evidence for the other. And I said, I apologize. I just couldn't believe the alternative, that you're actually that ignorant. So for a moment, I staggered. Then I reconsidered and just thought it was an honest mistake. You know, on second thought, and here's after why, after a while, I was like, okay, so he's now tripled down on this Nazis or socialists bullshit, and he's calling me self-righteous, and he has the gall to say that he's not dishonest after all this. 
after saying what he said about climate change and so on and so on, after all the positions he and I have discussed and how dishonest he is on a regular basis. And in another podcast, we'll get into the difference, the different ways that people can be dishonest because there's a lot of different ways you can lie. There's a lot of different ways you can be dishonest. But one of the ways that I, I detest the most and the one that he demonstrates, my guest, in almost every conversation I have with him is just being willfully ignorant of the truth. It's easy to go and Google where the Nazis on the left or the right. And then once you find out they're on the right, you look up, why do people say that the Nazis were on the left? And then you see all the information that describes why the right wing doesn't want to own the Nazis and why they call them socialists and how the Nazis took over that socialist workers party in Germany and turned it into a right wing fundamentalist, um, you know, essentially ethno state, why they were looking to exterminate the Jews by hijacking this party because it got their foot in the door. That's how they did it. That's why they did it. <laughs> the worst kind of dishonesty is this ignorance where you act like you're you're perfectly justified in being this ignorant when somebody's pointing out to you in a nice way, look, man, you, you you're just wrong, and here's where, and I I can show you the you know the Google search, and you please look into it, and then he just triples down now, doubles down, triples down, all over the course of a few minutes over a text message, takes no time to check himself, takes no time to find out whether he's right or wrong, but because he started with an incorrect position, he wants to now dig in. This is the worst kind of dishonesty there is. Here I am, an honest friend at this point, coming to him and saying, look, man, I think you might be wrong here, and here's why. And he he cannot, he will not modify his position, and he, he just closes his eyes, sticks his head in the sand, and says, la, 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 I'm not going to learn anything new about this topic. Okay, so after some thought then... I say, you know what, man, on second thought, let's just call this. I really don't see what I have to gain by continuing our friendship. I'm very sorry. Thanks for everything. Right? Now, this is a six-year friendship done. So, as one last jab, right? So, I try to end it with my friend. I say, you know, I really don't see what I have to gain by continuing our friendship because he's clearly just an intellectual inferior and just trying to drag me down into the mud, right? Now, he's supporting Nazism, <laughs> Or at least denying where this this idea these ideals came from and how they were applied. You know, th it's somebody like this that isn't going to recognize a threat when he sees one because he doesn't know how it happened the last time. So he says it did stop being fun at some point. I'm sure it did for him, uh, constantly being shown that you're wrong. And then he goes, "I'm not sure exactly when. I'm pretty sure it was right up from the beginning." I remember sitting across from him multiple times, having discussions with him at our old job, and him just looking like he was falling apart on the inside and completely confused and just didn't know how to behave or act. And all he could do was reiterate the stupid nonsense that he read in Ayn Rand's Fountainhead or whatever. Um, and he goes, uh, that's okay, though. I still consider you my friend, which is bullshit, obviously. But I do agree we've exhausted whatever philosophical path we were on together. Well, uh, you shouldn't consider me your friend. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I told you it's over, and that means it's over. You considering me a friend is being so stupid that you don't even recognize your enemies. And I mean, what else can you get? What else can you expect from the right? This is what you, this is what I've come to now expect from these people, right? And, and let's be clear, this, this friend of mine, he didn't, he didn't vote for Trump. He's not a QAnon Trump worshiper. If you're, if you're going to be an honest person, which my guest is not, obviously, I mean, at the end of our, at the end of our discussion, um, 
the recorded discussion that I that I've been giving you clips of, he essentially is supporting slavery. He's denying the severity of slavery in the United States and the history of what we did to those people as United States citizens and what we probably are still doing to those people in in many instances. The former slaves and their kin are are definitely second class or third class citizens in the America that we've built and, and the America that we've inherited from back then. Uh, so much of that has become clear in the last couple of years. To to discount that as by equating it to the United States Supreme Court forcing a baker to bake a cake is at at worst a level of ignorance and stupidity that is is really un unfathomable and we can't we can't let it stand and at best a terrible horrible <laughs> conclusion jumped to or gotten to based on horrible horribly wrong and insufficient foundational elements of which I've just been going through if you take Ayn Rand and you take you know right wing politics and you take on the same foundational aspects into your ideology and into your morality and ethic that my guest did you will whether you whether you want to or not end up a racist bigot <laughs> and supporting racism and bigotry <laughs> And then, and then saying, and then trying to, to you know, hand wave it away as well. We can't, we can't force a baker to do what they want, what they would normally do for profit, because that's slavery. <laughs> Just a complete poverty, a complete intellectual ideological ideological poverty, an immorality, and at the of the worst kind. Because here. Here we have, and you know, it's the famous saying that that if you've been on the internet and and watched you know YouTube videos about religious people and so on, that religious people debate other people. You hear you hear this going around a lot, and you hear that you know good people will do the best they can do, bad people will do the worst they can do. But in order to make a good person do something bad, that requires religion. Well, in the case of my friend, it doesn't require religion. It just requires um, reading Ayn Rand, uh, following the objectivism websites. Falling into the right wing politics, hook, line, and sinker, and then needlessly just stroking the shaft of laissez faire capitalism, uh, even though he owns no capital and has no understanding of the base literature, as I mentioned before, just blindly saying that the, the, the invisible hand of the market will correct. Now, we're, we're going to get into politics. Don't worry. We're going to get into economics. In this podcast, I have a lot to talk about in the coming seasons. But what you're listening to right now are the early recordings. My first attempt at a podcast. I just want to say thank you. This has been a really long show. I had a lot to cover here and I'm really glad that you stuck with it. Please, please continue to listen in the future to Ear Seduction. I, our next podcast is going to be a little bit more lighthearted, if memory serves. And again... I've released all episodes. So far, I have them counted at 16. There may be more. There may be just a few less, maybe 14 at the fewest, for you to binge listen to. So take them in order because not only are you going to get to see how I develop as a host, but how my co-host develops as a co-host, how our, our production value increases over the seasons, and how we struggle to define what it is that we're doing here and what is our purpose and goal only to come out on the other end as champions. Thank you for listening. This has been Ear Seduction. Ear Seduction.
seduction. 